take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. Turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. And uh, Old Testament, major prophets, Daniel chapter 11. Now, I want you to look at this chapter for just a second so that you understand how long it is. All right? I want to put your mind at ease this morning, okay? In Daniel chapter 11, it begins at verse 1, and as far as our Bibles are concerned, and and pages devoted to uh, verses, it just looks like uh, this is a huge chapter in comparison to most chapters, even though it only has, had, only has 45 verses. Did you see that? So we start, on, uh, we start uh, with uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and, and most Bibles probably have two full pages of information there. Now, we're not going to go over all of that. We're not going to go over all of that. In fact, uh, last week we, we kind of focused on Alexander the Great. Today we're going to focus on Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, next week we're going to focus on the Antichrist. Three A's. The three A's. It's uh, Trebek who does the three P's, right? Uh, we're doing the three. I'm old enough to see. I'm old enough to know there's an advertisement on TV uh, about the three P's. But the three A's. So I want you to keep this in mind. Alexander the Great... Antiochus Epiphanes, and the Antichrist, okay? It's critical that we understand that. Let's pray before we even start with the first verse. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word together, and we pray in your precious name uh, that you will give to us the insight that we need to put our minds at ease, to encourage our hearts, to strengthen us in these last days, and to give us the courage that we need to press on whatever responsibilities you give to us. Thank you for your blessings, and we pray, Lord, that you would just guide us through this passage. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's begin at Daniel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 or 2. Now, let me explain. I, I, I shouldn't have to, you know, you may have to read this a couple of times to understand that chapter 11, verse 1, is not a historical reference that references verse 2 and following. Because in chapter 10, an angel comes to Daniel because Daniel is fervently praying for insight. He wants to understand what the Lord is doing. He wants to understand the plans of God, and he's just got, it's foggy for him. He understands some things, but there's some things he doesn't understand. And he's grieved, and he's praying earnestly. And our Bible study team on Wednesday night have been looking at Daniel chapter 10 because there's a spiritual battle in the angels of heaven between good angels and bad angels. God has given the angel, the information to share with Daniel. And the problem is that a bad angel is fighting with the good angel for three weeks until God directs Michael, the archangel, to come and help defeat the bad angel so that Daniel can get the information that he needs. Now, I know that sounds weird, and I know that sounds strange in the day in which we live, but the Bible says that we, what, wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. And so it's important for us to understand, and, and uh, so we've looked at that. So the angel is actually speaking, and the angel says in verse 21, the end of 10, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So he's the one who has helped defeat the prince of Persia. That's the name of the evil angel and probably his cohorts. Also, so in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, the angel is still speaking. So the angel is still speaking. He says, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. All right? So getting that historical information out of the way, which is really not pinpointing down the time of this message. This message actually starts in chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. See, that's the historical reference. We now moved. Power has been transferred from the Babylonian Empire now to the Persian Empire. And soon it's going to be, in, in years ahead, it's going to be transferred to the Greek Empire, and then it's going to be transferred to the Roman Empire. This is what Daniel has been consistently saying. Now, I have this as an application at the end of the message, but let me give it to you right now. Most of us end the Bible at Malachi, and we say to ourselves, how much time elapses between the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. How many know how much time elapses in that period of time? How many say it's 100 years, 200 years, 300 years? If you say it's 400 years, it's about 400 years. And we call that the silent years. But i got to tell you something. God's not silent. God is never silent. God is never away from anything that he has created or any plan and purpose that he has put into place. God is always active. And the information that we're looking at in Daniel happens, for the most part, a lot of it happens in those 400 silent years between Malachi and the New Testament. It's kind of like Rip Van Winkle. When I was a kid, I read, uh, that's David Fenmore Cooper's uh, work, right? Washington Irving. Uh, Washington Irving, and uh, Rip Van Winkle, he goes to sleep, and he sleeps for, what, 20 years, and when he wakes up, it's a brand new world. He doesn't even recognize things, and so when we end the Old Testament, and we go through 400 years, we get to the New Testament, and it's a bustling world. It is totally different than what we ended with, and when you enter the New Testament, Rome is the power and, and, and I'm just, just reminding you, the power has been transferred from Babylon now to Persia. It's going to be transferred from Persia to Greece, and then Greece to Rome. All right, having said that, let's look at verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. So the angel says, okay, now I'm going to give you the information that God has purposed to give to you. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, Three more kings will arise in Persia. Did that happen? Yes, it did. Three more kings arose. 
I thought to myself, boy, I'll tell you what, I could impress you all by giving you, when I go through all of this, I could impress you all by giving you all the names and all that stuff. But I'll be very honest with you. This stuff is so easy to forget. You're not going to remember anything after today. I forget half of it myself. Let me simply say that someone has categorized all the prophecies in this one chapter alone and counted 135 prophecies that God has fulfilled. That's a lot. More than any other chapter in the Bible. So if you go home today and say, you know, we looked at the chapter today in the Bible that has more prophecies in it than any other chapter in the Bible. So I'm not going to give you the insignificant names because we're focusing on Alexander the Great was first, Antiochus Epiphanes number two, and who's the third one? The Antichrist. Okay, so and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. The fourth shall be far richer than them all. Now, i gotta, I got to tell you, i got to add this king into the three that we're already looking at. you got to know the name of this particular king. He's going to make number four. So, the fourth shall be far richer than them all by his strength, through his riches. Notice, by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Greece is becoming a power in the world. The Persians are still the biggest empire, you see, and the Persians want to destroy the Greek empire. Now, in order to know who this guy is, you've got to turn your Bible back to the book of Esther. Esther, okay? So, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther before the Psalms. And Job and the Proverbs, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And you say, well, pastor, why are you going back to that passage of Scripture? Just give us his name. We're okay with it. No, I want you to, I want you to see the reality of the information that is given to Daniel. The Bible says that this fourth king will be far richer than them all. By his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So let's go back to Esther for just a second and see if we can glean anything that collaborates what Daniel was just told. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, those of you who are history buffs know that this is Xerxes. This is Xerxes. But his name in, in, in Hebrew is Ahasuerus. Okay? And it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Would you say that he is far more powerful than all the kings so far? Well, if you know the history, yeah, this guy really owns it all. This guy has conquered it all. And not only that, but it says, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. Imagine this, inviting all of the leaders of 170-some 127 provinces. Can you imagine that? 
sending out the uh, notice that you're going to have a big feast and, and having them all come from all of these provinces from all over the empire and come to the, 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 the winter capital of the city of, of Persia, which was uh, Shushan. And notice what it says in verse 4. When he, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom, this is when he showed everybody how wealthy he was. This is when he showed everybody the splendor of his kingdom. This is when he showed everybody all the glory of Persia that he had anything to do with. How long was the banquet? How long did the feast last? Tell me. What's next? How, how long did it last? 180 days in all. When these guys came from the provinces, they came for a half a year or more. I mean, this was a big celebration. Maybe some had to go back from time to time, but this is huge. This is huge. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And we haven't even gotten into a description of his wealth to a great degree, but we sure see that it must have been extensive based on what we've already read. So when we read in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, that there's going to be three more Persian kings, and there were, and there was a fourth one that will be far richer than them all, by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. He is telling the truth. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but if you read that passage in Esther, you will see that in the third year is when, of his reign is when he put on this big feast. And he brought all of his leaders to the capital city, so that he could rally them to go to war against the Greeks. Now, this is just a little bit of information. I love the Bible because it's rooted, it's not fantasy, it's not fairy tales. It is rooted in history. And I love it because the Bible connects God's word with what history is all about. And so in the third year, he gets everybody together so he can rally them against the Greek empire that is rising. He doesn't want that, the Greeks to become a world empire, so he wants to stop it. And so he gets everybody together. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but from the third year until the seventh year, he goes out and he does battle against the Greeks. But let me ask you a question. Based on what God said there's going to happen, there's going to be a transfer of power from Babylon to, uh, to the Persian Empire, to the Greek Empire, to the Roman Empire. Guess what happens when he goes and does war against the Greeks? He loses. The world empire of that day loses. He comes back. He comes back a couple of years later, and then in, uh, he comes back, and then he decides that he, he, he has gotten rid of the queen. And so he comes back. When he comes back in his seventh year, that is when Esther shows up on the scene, just to let you all know a little bit of history there. Now go back to Daniel chapter 11 for just a moment, okay? In Daniel chapter 11, the Bible says that uh, this is going to happen. So Ahasuerus, which is the Hebrew translation for Xerxes, the Greek king, 
which everybody reads in their ancient history books in school, okay? It's happened. It's going to happen. And then in verse 3, I want you to see, then, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now you and I recognize that second king, which was the first one on our list, as Alexander the Great. We already looked at Alexander the Great. We introduced Alexander the Great last week, but he is actually referred to several times in the book of Daniel. Alexander the Great is probably the most well-known ancient general in all of ancient history. When we looked at him in Daniel chapter 8, we discovered that the Bible predicted, the Bible made the prophecy that Alexander the Great was the male goat of chapter 8, verse 5. And when he came across the surface of the whole earth, he came across the earth without touching the ground because he had conquered the world in 13 years, including the Persian Empire. In 13 years. It is incredible. In fact, God is so detailed in what he says that when he interprets that information in Daniel chapter 8, verse 21, it says, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is that, be that between his eyes is the first king of the kingdom of Greece. Now, I don't know about you, but I go home when I read this stuff and I say, Lord, you have just put our, you, you put our feet down on solid rock. Because you are intricately involved in the nations of the world. You do control the universe. You do control the nations of the earth. You do control history. It's all in your, in your hands and in your control. The heart of the king is clearly in your hands. I find that to be incredible. And so Alexander the Great, is, uh, he did this in his 30s, his early 30s. He had, uh, he had contracted a, a fever, a, an illness, and he died in Babylon. And before he died, though, he is sitting in his tent. He is sitting in his tent, and he's crying. And you know why he was crying? Because at the age of 32, having conquered the whole world, he was crying because there was nothing left to conquer. Isn't that something? But anyway, having said that, what happens to Alexander's kingdom in Daniel chapter 11? In Daniel chapter 11, we were already told this in Daniel chapter 8. He repeats the same information. He says his kingdom was broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven. Because when he died, he didn't have any children that could take over. He didn't have any. He had generals. And the generals, four generals, decided that they were going to split up the Greek Empire into four parts. And they fought with each other, and they fought with each other, and fought with each other, until two of those generals kind of rose to the top, the general of the north and the general of the south. And they are being referred to in verse 5, also the king of the south shall become strong, and the king of the north. And, and, and you'll see that in verses 5, all the way to 20, you're going to see a constant reference to the kings of the south and the kings of the north. These are the Greek kings 
Syria and Egypt. The northern king is Syria, the southern king is Egypt. And you're going to see a constant, constant battle between these kings because they all, they want to control the world. And in controlling the world, they got to control that piece of land between them, which is Israel, where the Jewish people have returned from Babylon to resettle. And I want to, I want to say something to you. I'm a firm believer in the history of the Bible. I'm a premillennialist. I believe that Israel is going to be uh, 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 is going to be reestablished in its homeland. I believe that when Jesus comes back again, he's going to he's going to convert the Jewish people in mass. And I look at Israel as kind of like a timeline. I really do, because God's purpose when you, you know, we can make a good case, and I hate to digress like this, but this is really important. We can make a good case in Daniel that the reason why Satan was so, so interested in destroying Israel is because he knew that the prophecies of the Old Testament were that the Messiah was going to come through Israel. If I can destroy it, imagine this. If I can destroy Israel, then guess what? Maybe I can, maybe I can just... Uh, uh, just foil God's plan to bring in the Messiah. See? Well, Jesus is coming back to this planet again, isn't he? Just as he was here the first time. He's coming back the second time. And where is he coming? Where is, he, is he touching down in New York? No. San Francisco? Tokyo? Beijing? No. London, England? Where does the Bible say that Jesus is going to return to this earth? The Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Well, if I were the devil, if I could foil, see, it, you know, history repeats itself. The devil tried to foil the, the plans of God the first time, and the devil is trying to foil the plans of God now. And I really, I really believe, I really believe that he thinks that if he can get rid of Israel, he can foil God's plan for the coming or the return of the Messiah. I don't think that's very far-fetched. I really don't. I really don't. So anyway, back to Daniel chapter 11 in the remaining time that we have. Because this is pretty exciting. So you have these kings warring among themselves. We could go through here and we could pick out incident after incident where historians will look at that and say, oh my goodness, that happened just like Daniel said. Oh my, this happened just like Daniel said. 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 It took 150 years for Xerxes, 150 years between Xerxes and Alexander the Great. It's another 150 years for all of this prophecy at verse 5 to verse 20 to take place. Another 150 years. And then God slows it down. When you get to verse 20... God slows it down, and now in verse 20 through the end of the chapter, we're dealing basically with a very short period of time and one major personality. So let's pick it up there, see if we can make some final conclusions here, and then next week we'll kind of wrap it all up when we deal with the Antichrist. But in verse 19, there's obviously a king who is on the scene 
He is famous. His name is Antiochus the Great. He is the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy we're going to conclude with today. But the Bible says in verse 19, Then he shall turn his faith toward the fortress of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Don't worry about that information. There's too much history in there for me to try to get you to understand. But look at verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. What do you think the glorious kingdom refers to? Persia? Greece? Rome, the Moabites, the Ammonites. How about the Israelites? <laughs> okay, all right. I think we have it now. So the Israelites are established in their land. They're getting a, a, a slow start, but they're established in their land now. And here's, and here's Antiochus the Great who's imposing taxes on the glorious kingdom. Does it give you the impression that the people of Israel are not free to determine their own destiny at this point? No, because the world empires are vying for their territory. But then I want you to see what happens next. And we're going to just read down through here, and I'm going to give you the information as we go. And in his place shall arise a vile person. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. He was known as Antiochus IV. His dad was Antiochus III. He's Antiochus IV. He names himself Epiphanes because he acts like God. He acts like he's God. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will give the honor of royalty. They will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and then seize the kingdom by intrigue. Did that happen? Indeed it did. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. Not only were all the princes of the, of, of, of the rest of the world fooled by this guy. But the prince of the covenant was too. The high priest of Israel got sucked into it as well. And after the league is made, verse 23, with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. How many people, how many people, how many leaders? Uh, Hitler did this, uh, lots of people did. You can't, you can't win over a people unless you smile a lot and say, listen, we're going to give you stuff, right? You can't do that. And I say that not because of the, common, the political climate here today, but that's what he does. That's what he does. He shall, in verse 24, he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers had not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He's offering stuff to everybody. He's giving stuff away. Because he wants to have all of the people of the Greek Empire that he controls, which is the Syria part. He wants them all to love him and adore him. But he's an evil, wicked person. And so in verse 25, he stirs up his power and his courage against the king of the south. He decides he's going to invade the king of the south. He's going to invade Egypt with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, the king of the, but he shall not stand. Antiochus Epiphanes will not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. And for a short period of time, Egypt is spared being conquered by 
the northern king. All right? That's the first invasion that Antiochus Epiphanes makes in the land. And here's what you need to understand. This is critical. If you remember nothing else today, I want you to remember what happens in the next three verses. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. Because they're both Greek kings, right? The north king and the south king. While returning, verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, okay, because he negotiated a return to his land even though he was defeated, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. When Antiochus Epiphanes was defeated in Egypt, he came back through the land, went up through Palestine, went up through the Israelite uh, nation, and when he got to Jerusalem, he was so angry and so upset that he took out his frustrations on the Jewish people. He slaughtered them. He massacred them. He desecrated the temple. It was horrible what he did. And he robbed them blind. And then he went back to his country in the north. Now, let's try and finish this up. At the appointed time, he shall return. This is prophecy. God says this is going to happen. It did happen. And now the second phase is going to happen. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him, and therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against what? The Holy Covenant. Israel is going to get it again. Jerusalem is going to get it again. Only this time it's going to be far worse than it was the first time. That's the tragedy of all of this. But the interesting thing in verse 30 is that we're seeing a description of the Roman Empire for the very first time that is gaining in strength. All of these ships from Cyprus that come against him are from the Romans who are gaining in strength. And they bring their ships down to Egypt because he makes this second invasion into Egypt. And when he is in Egypt, uh, the Bible tells us that he shall be, he, the Bible tells us that he's going to take out his anger and his frustration on the Jewish people. So you can guess what happens the second time around, right? He is defeated again. Only this time, he's defeated by the Romans. It's a very famous situation, very famous. The Roman general walks up to Antiochus Epiphanes, and he says, Rome, the Roman Senate says you're to leave now. And Antiochus Epiphanes stands there, and he looks at the Roman general, and he says, Caius, I don't know if he called him by his first name. This, this Roman general has three names. And he said to him, he says, well, we'll think about that. And the Roman general, Caius, drew a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes in the sand. And he said to Antiochus Epiphanes, Rome wants your answer right now. 
and Antiochus Epiphanes, who's standing in the circle, if you want to know where the line in the sand comes from, <laughs> this is it. He stands in the circle, and he's thinking about it, and he says, well, if Rome wants me to leave, then I guess I will leave. And so Antiochus Epiphanes left, and he marched up through Israel, and when he got to Israel, he took his frustrations out on Israel, and in taking his frustrations out on Israel, the Bible tells us that he did enormous damage to that country. Antiochus, I want to just read this real simple paragraph. There are ten verbs here. You count them. There are ten verbs of what Antiochus Epiphanes did to Israel. Number one, he invaded Jerusalem, raped and murdered women, slaughtered children on sight, erected an image of Zeus in the Jewish temple, and demanded that the Jewish worship it. He stopped all the Jewish sacrifices and sacrificed a pig on the altar... He flung its blood throughout the temple and force-fed the pork to the priests. The Israelites were not allowed to eat pork, you remember. The temple was desolate, and no Jew could go there because Antiochus Epiphanes had made it an abomination. And this is what is called the abomination of desolation. All I want you to do is remember that because next week we're going to take a look at the abomination of desolation. It has happened. It happened back there in the Old Testament. But i got to tell you, Antiochus Epiphanes may have been the Antichrist of the Old Testament, but there is an Antichrist of the New Testament coming who is going to create his own abomination of desolation. And we'll look at that next week. But let me just give you an application or two real quick before we end here. You know, at the Alamo... Just to bring it up a little bit in history, Colonel Travis was in charge of the forces at the Alamo, and he was given a message by the Mexicans when the Mexicans completely surrounded the Alamo, and the message said, surrender. Surrender. Colonel Travis, Davy Crockett was there, Jim Bowie was there. Colonel Travis drew a line in the sand, in the dirt in the fort. And he said, everybody who's with me, come across the line. Davy Crockett did, Jim Bowie did, but you know the outcome. But I got to tell you, I got to tell you, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because when you think of all the history that God has given here and knowing that God is in control, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Nobody pushes God around. You think that's a great application? I think it's a really wonderful application. Nobody pushes God around. God is going to do what He wants to do. He's going to do it when He wants to do it. He's going to do it how He wants to do it. And you and I need to understand that God is ne He's never silent during those 400 years. He's not silent. But number two, you and I don't have to worry about God being a pushover. Because he is not. I have a final quick application. Let me give it to you here. Because I realize that all of us aren't real interested in history. I know that. I understand that. I understand that. I, I, I like history. But I don't like it well enough to just immerse myself in it 24 hours a day. And so I have the same problem, I think. I think I can feel 
your pain whenever we're dealing with history. But let me simply say this to you. Supposing I were to say to you that, hey, listen, California back in the 1800s, late 1800s, California has the has the richest, richest, richest territory of any territory in the United States. Why don't you just get in your wagon and head west? And, uh, and you say, well, okay, California, west, yes. And you get your compass out, and I say, no, 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 you can't take your compass. You've got to leave your compass here. And those mountain men of the west who would draw maps... You have a couple of those, and you pull out your map, and, the, and uh, maybe the Jim Bridger made or, uh, or some of these other mountain men, and, and, and you pull out your map, and I say, no, nope, no, nope, can't have your map either. You got to get rid of your map. You can't, I want you to go, you go west, but no compass, no maps, and then you get your GPS out. You say, well, I can use my GPS, can't I? And I say, nope, can't use your GPS. I'm going to tell you something. We live in a fearful world today, but one of the reasons why we live in a fearful world because we're running around, we're moving around on this globe without a spiritual GPS or a map or a compass. If for no other reason, if for no other reason, it'll help orientate us. Uh, it'll help put us, put a proper perspective in our thinking, in everything we do, and whatever is happening on the world scene if we know what the Bible teaches. Daniel was very upset for three weeks because he didn't know the details that the angel now has given to him. And now he knows, and the angel is going to tell him, Daniel, do you have anything to worry about? And Daniel, if you can read between the lines in the very last chapter, Daniel will say, nope, don't have anything to worry about. God has all of this in control. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to see how important it is as our guide, as our direction. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Turn in your song of invitation in the hymn book, our song of last week that we sang, our song of invitation, only trust him. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, good opportunity for you to respond Respond in your heart to say from the heart, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to be saved. Jesus, you paid the penalty for my sin when you died on the cross. I believe that with all my heart. And I respond and I receive the truth of the gospel. Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. Will you all stand together as we give you that opportunity as we sing together our final closing song of invitation. Let's sing it.